The word great to me is way overused. You know, great's a different level. Great people think different. Their approach is different. They're always trying to get better. They all have that, that little extra something that nobody else has. Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome 42-year high school head coach and current director of coaching development for USA Basketball's youth division, Don Showalter. Coach Showalter is here today to discuss the essential ingredients of a great practice, the difference between good and great, favorite press alignments, and we talk dribble drive motion during the always fun start, sub, or sit. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. Follow us for daily detailed breakdowns on Twitter and YouTube, and subscribe to our Sunday morning newsletter where we consolidate and break down much of the best that we've seen from around the world of basketball. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Don Showalter. I think it'd be really fun maybe to talk about practice planning with you can start very general like how do you approach practice planning and preparing a practice i think over the years you know i look back uh, I, I coached high school basketball for 42 years and i look back on i still have every practice plan that i ever had from 42 years my wife's about ready to throw them out but i still <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's gonna be a fire hazard <laughs> no kidding but it's fun to go through and just look at them first couple of years i had i go i look at those practice plan, I go, my goodness, how did we ever do anything? You know, but it was a process and practice planning is something I think that you as a coach, you need to have a daily practice plan, a weekly one, a monthly one, and a yearly one. What do you want to accomplish this week? So we might have, you know, in Iowa, we only got about two weeks of practice before our first game. So uh, I schedule out, all right, here's what I want. I have to get in before the first game. Now in the first you know, monthly one, here's what I want to get done the first month. You may, I may add a, add a little bit of something to our press, or I may add something to our offense. Unfortunately, as a young coach, I thought I had to get everything in those first two weeks. My goodness, I was trying to get everything in, and we were horrible that first game. You know, we were trying to do everything. And so I think young coaches really get caught up in the fact, and youth coaches, of doing way too much. Just put some basics in and let the kids play. I, I think basketball is a game that's, uh, to me, way overcoached and undertaught. And the longer I coach, the more I realize, you know what? As a coach, I don't have a lot of control what goes on on the floor. I mean, I can give suggestions, but many times those players have to figure it out. My, one of my best phrases, I think, is, hey, you figure it out. You're the one playing. You know, now we're teaching them how to play type of thing, as opposed to me trying to dictate everything that goes on a court. And I think as a young coach, I really got caught up into that aspect of it. Whatever went on the court, boy, I had to make sure it was dictated by me. And and now, I, I mean, the longer I coached, I can give the players a lot of freedom and have them figured out. And, and uh, I think that's really been more effective. 
as I coach. So that's kind of the overall view of the practice plans. Now, a daily practice plan, we always start out with what we call a mind candy. And we take the players off the court in a classroom. And we have a notebook and they have to keep a notebook on a daily notebook. And the mind candy is just a phrase for the day. And the mind candy might be success for today depends on your hard work. Or there are three things that determine success. Hard work, attitude, and coachability. You know, those kind of things are just mind candies. That we, and then we have the players write it down and then we talk about that. So that's the first thing we do. I think that's really important uh, to get players ready for practice. Boy, I look back on my first years of coaching. Kids came on the court. They thought, hey, they're ready to practice. So it took me 10 or 15 minutes, I think, to get them really into practice. So after the mind candy classroom work, which might be five minutes, it might be 10 minutes. Then we'll come in off the court. I divide my practice up into three things. Uh, About a third of it's going to be skill development. And about a third of it's going to be work on whole offense. And about a third of it's going to be work on whole defense. So that's kind of how I divide up the practice. I think it's, that helped me as a young coach. All right, here's the thirds I'm going to really work at. So I have a two-hour practice. I'm going to have 40 minutes in, in my whole offense. Now, how am I going to construct that 40 minutes? And then we always end up with communication circle where we circle up. Our directions are we have a question of the day. Question of the day might be, tell the person beside you what you liked about his game today. And so they have to look each other in the eye, call them by their first name, and then tell them what they've done well. So that really has helped build trust. It builds communication. We change a question every day. And so once you kind of get through all those questions, you really see a bond forming with your players on your team. That communication circle has been uh, to me, has been one of the best things that we ever do. And that's how we end every practice. Coach, if we can get back to uh, skill development. Yep. Now, first, if you're a high school coach, who maybe you have only one assistant and you got a team of 10 to 12, how are you kind of breaking up the skill development? And is it with defense? Is it just, you know, one-on-oh repping out? How, how do you kind of approach the skill development part of your practice? Yeah, that's a great question because I think there's a lot of different ideas I think certainly skill development needs to take place every day on your team through the entire season. One of the things I, I kind of realized as I continued to coach high school basketball is the teams I coached seemed to always be their best at the end of the year. By the time tournament time came around, we, we were really good. We were much better than we were at Christmas time or even halfway through it. And so I really kind of did an uh, analysis of why I thought our teams were, were better at the end of the year. And I, I came to the fact that we did skill development from day one through day 70, if we have 70 practices. We did, if we went for two hours, we did 40 minutes of skill development from day one through day 70. And I go watch other practices of coaches, and I don't see that every day. I see a lot of, you know, team type of stuff, which you have to do, obviously. And and they just kind of skim over the skill development. And as a high school coach or, you know, obviously a youth coach, but you just, you can't do that because you never get good enough that you graduate from skill. And I I go back to Stephen Curry. You know, he's arguably the best shooter in the NBA. Well, 
What does he do after practice? He makes 300 to 500 shots after every practice. And yet he's the best shooter. Well, he's the best shooter because that's what he does. But I think skill development has to be done. You, you build habits. And then you put those habits of skill development, whether it be ball handling, shooting. Then you put those in a competitive situation. When we started really emphasizing three-on-three with our USA basketball teams, we found out that our skill development was really enhanced by playing three-on-three. Coach, you know, before you get to the competitive aspect and building the habits, in your experience, is there sort of like a good group number, whether it's three, four, five guys that obviously allows you to work within your resources as a coach and give the guys enough reps to where they're starting to retain it within like a time frame? Pat, you raise a great point because I am not going to have kids stand in line. Yeah. To me, the, the ideal number is six. Okay. I'm going to do, do it six. If I'm going to work out a group of kids, I want, I'd like to have six kids because I think that's the ideal number. Because then I can go individual work development. I can go three lines of two, and I can go three on three work with it. And you, know, you talk about practices, Pat. I think one thing I forgot to mention, you know, you got to have a flow to your practice. And how do you get that flow? That comes from the coach. I control the flow of my practice. So you give players a drill, let's say, and you need to name your drills. If I'm in practice, I say, all right, we're going to do the UCLA drill. I'm not going to say, hey, we're going to do that three-on-two, two-on-one drill that we did two days ago. You remember, guys, how we did that? <laughs> you know, that stops all the flow of practice. So when I say UCLA drill, they know what it is. So that really creates a flow to practice. And I think coaches talk way too much in practice. We waste a lot of time. We take the flow away when we talk. You don't need to stop your, your practice to correct. You can correct while the drill's going on. You can correct an individual uh, player while the drill's going on. I think the more we stop practice, we lose them. I, I read an article in Harvard Review Talking about attention span and, you know, in, in today's age with, with social media and people on their phones, and the attention span of a young adult, 16, 17 or younger, is seven seconds. So I'm telling coaches, you know, you talk for five minutes in a practice, you've lost them for what, four minutes and 53 seconds? <laughs> yeah. So my point is, we really try and teach in sound bites. One or two sentences, teaching short sound bites. As a young coach, I tell you what, I, I talked way too much in practice. We didn't get enough done. I thought if I was talking, they were listening and I was teaching. Well, that's not, not necessarily <laughs> true. Uh, by the way, that article also said if you have a goldfish in a container and you run your finger, that goldfish has an attention span of eight seconds. <laughs> <laughs> the goldfish has. A longer attention span than the kids you're talking yeah. to. <laughs> but does he have a jump shot? No jump shot, but he has a longer attention span for a second. Coach, I want to stick on practice and try to connect two different points that you've made in the last few minutes. It's on the flow of practice and then yep. also connecting the flow of practice with actually how many drills do you have that you run every year because i think as coaches like drills sometimes it's like uh, you get lost in it's like netflix when you're trying to find a movie and there's just so many and then you end up watching nothing almost there's so many drills that you could do but how many drills does a coach really need to have 
throughout a season. So that way the players have this good synergy of knowing what the drills are and then the practice can keep flowing without stopping. Dan, that's a great point because, uh, again, I refer back to my younger coaching days and the mistakes I made. And, you know, I, I'd see a drill. I go, man, that's a great drill. I'm going to put that in. And it, it really had nothing to do with what we were doing as a team. You know, it might be a shooting drill where we were, we were getting a lot of good shots, but they weren't anywhere that helped our offense. And so I think to that aspect of it, if you have 10 or 12 really good drills that you like, as the season goes on, then maybe you mix in a new one every now and then that teaches the same thing. So, you know, I have a group maybe of about a dozen good shooting drills I like to use. Well, maybe the first 20 practices, I use two of those. You know, then I start mixing in other shooting drills with that just to keep, keep the players sharp a little bit. You talk about the flow of practice. You know, the flow of practice is really determined by, you know, your drills and how quickly the kids get in the drill and what they do with those. And so I think if they are familiar with the drills, you can do a better job at teaching what you want taught because the kids know the drills. They're not trying to figure out the drill. And, you know, from a coaching standpoint, don't just drill for the sake of drilling. I mean, some players are really good drill guys. You know, they look awesome in drills, but then you put that into more of a three-on-three, four-on-four type of action, you know, they're not quite as good with it. So a lot of the drills I have cut out over the years just because you know, they're great drills, but I want to get more out of those drills by doing three-on-three, four-on-four, five-on-five work because I think that enhances the skill development. Plus, it also makes players learn how to play. Yeah. We've been talking a lot about the good parts of practice or the good flow or all of that. I'm interested in your thoughts on when practice is going bad or, yep. you know, like you have this, you spend two hours writing up a beautiful practice plan and then you get into it and the guys just aren't playing well. You're throwing the ball over the gym. What do you do? Do you just stay with the practice plan? Do you change things up on the fly? Like what happens when things are going south? Well, I, I think you really have to be adaptable. And if practice isn't going well, I think it's the coach's fault. I don't think players have bad practices. I think coaches have bad practices. And what I mean by that, I, I think coaches need to bring two things to practice every day, enthusiasm and passion. If you don't bring those every day in practice, your practice will not be very good. Coaches say, well, I shouldn't have to bring the enthusiasm and passion. Yes, you do, because your players will feed off what you do. And, and then your good players, your leaders, they'll, they'll catch on and they'll have the enthusiasm and passion. But if something's not going well, I'll pull one of my leaders over. I go, you know what, this practice is really not going very well. And so I would like to have you make sure that this practice goes better. You need to let Johnny know that, hey, he needs to get his butt in gear. Right. So I'll depend a lot on the players. I'll also stop practice if I don't think it's going well and say, now listen, we, we talk about standards if I'm talking to the team. And one of our standards is great practices. Now, how many here think we're having a great practice tonight? You know, probably nobody. If it, I mean, they all know if they're having a good practice or not. And so I would say, listen, our standard is to have a better practice. So I said, from this point on, I'm going to have a better practice as a coach, and you're going to have a better practice as a team. And invariably, that practice has always picked up. You know, I mean, I've done some crazy things <laughs> with practices. I walked off the court. Yeah. I told my assistants, we're, we're leaving. We're going to the locker room. 
you guys can take over practice. I mean, I've done that before. I think sometimes we as coaches, again, we try to control so much that we don't let the players have fun and play. Basketball is a fun game. Right? And we got to make it fun. You know, they look to us to, you know, to bring enthusiasm and passion. I mean, that's fun for them. So you better define what fun is first for your players. You know, fun's not pulling down the shorts to the person in front of you right, <laughs> in line. Right. You know, my definition of fun is doing hard things well. If you're doing hard things well, that's fun. So we try to implement that and let them know that, hey, this is a hard drill. This is a hard skill. But now if they get it, boy, they're, they're pumped up. That's fun. Coach, you're really hitting home for me. Um, I was a, a very young head coach at the high school level before I went to the college level. And as a, a young coach, when practice isn't going well, it feels like such a personal thing. And I think, you know, I know I've been victim to kicking the guys out of practice or you want to put them on the line to run or you want to yell and scream or, or, or punt the ball into the bleachers, or whatever it is. I think we've all, you know, had it. Well done. But so at, <laughs> as you've gone through your career now, I guess, what are some other ways that you can get a practice going back on the right track rather than doing something like that? Like stupid, like, 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 like I used to do. <laughs> I mean, you know, we all, we've all done that. You know, we've all, Hey, get on the line. We're going to run. We're going to run to you puke, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, kick guys out of practice. And I, I think there's a time for maybe eliminating the guy from practice, Yeah, but I think you do it in an authentic way. And I use that term authentic. So I really don't think players respond to yelling and screaming anymore. I mean, they respond to enthusiasm and they respond to passion, but I, th- I don't think they respond to you if, you if you're going to yell and scream at them. I think you, you can be very demanding with your players without being demeaning. Once you get demeaning, then they, they turn you off and you're, you're probably done with that. You lose the trust. But we found out, you know, guys like Jason Tatum, you know, who's going to be, he's, he's an all-star. He was one of my favorite players. We still keep in close contact, but, you know, they want to be better. Your players want to get better. And so you can be demanding, and that goes back to, you know, if you're not having a good practice, you stop practice and let them know this is not acceptable. We need to practice to a higher standard. You know, walk off the court and say, listen, guys, you need to get this practice back to where it's really good. One of the things we'll do, we may stop practice and just do a shooting drill. If I have a seven-minute defensive drill i learned through the years i'm not going to extend those seven minutes sometimes they're terrible and as a coach we've done this i've done it by golly we're going to do this or we're going to keep this drill until everybody gets it right right well you know what no it never happens (laughs) that never happens we may come back to that drill the next day but boy when that time is up seven minutes i move on to the next drill to your point dan we have to let things go as coaches we can't harbor something that has been done last practice. Maybe you had a, a you know, one of your players had did something that you was really stupid or something. You know, the next day it's over with, it's done with. And when your players understand that, I think they respond much better to you. You know, you may get upset, but then it's over with, it's done. I, I think that's part of being, you know, humble as a coach and, and uh, adaptable. Uh, you know, that's all psychology. Yeah. And, and the longer I coach, I think I got probably a little better at that than when I was a young coach. <laughs> and also... Came with reps. Yeah, I know. Uh, and also, I think 
you know, the ability to coach elite elite players at 16 and 17, you know, opened my eyes a little bit because the, even though they're highly skilled and physically they're really good, they're they're normal high school kids. Does the communication really not change even with these elite U16, U17 athletes? Or is the communication more like detailed because they have more skill, clearly, maybe do they process the game at a higher level than your normal high school, junior, senior? Yeah, great point. What I found out is I coach them exactly like I coach my high school team. There's really not a lot of difference in how I how I coach the Jason Tatums of the world or Brad Beals or Colin Sexton's of the world as opposed to my own high school team. Coach them the same way. I'm the same guy. They may catch on a little quicker. But surprisingly, you know, they need the reps just as much as my high school kids do. We do the dribble out, jump stop, pivot, pass, drill with them, just like I do with my high school kids, just like I do with a group of nine-year-olds. You know, I just may do it less time. But, you know, I go back to you never you never get good enough to graduate from the skill. Coach, with dealing with elite players, you've mentioned a couple guys, Tatum and Beal and Colin Sexton, that have, you know, made it to the league and are all-stars, a couple of those guys. Looking back, and I'm sure you've coached a lot of guys that are very talented at 16, 17, but then don't become Tatum or Beal. Can you, you know, look at, you know, on a whole, what makes those guys different? Because I'm sure at 16, 17, they're all very, very talented. But is there something about those guys that you think elevates them to where they are now? Yeah. You're basically asking what a NBA scout would ask me about players. That's the same question I get from. Yeah, 30 different teams in the NBA. What makes them different or whatever? I, I think there's a couple things that players have to realize. Hard work doesn't necessarily guarantee anything. I go throughout the country, throughout the world, and there are thousands and probably hundreds of thousands of players who work hard. It's interesting because when they interview a player after they won a championship, yeah, you know, we put in all this hard work. Well, the guys who you just beat, they got second. They put in as much hard work as you. So really now, what separates that from being more of an elite player? And I would tell you that the competitive nature is really a huge separator. Jalen Suggs might be the best competitive player that I've ever coached. Wow. I mean, he took his hard work to another level. And it's all because how competitive he was. There's just a small handful in that group. Uh, you know, Brad Beal, Colin Sexton was in that group. So I, th- I think, you know, the, you tell players, yeah, you got to work hard. Well, that's, you do, but, you know, 100,000 players work hard. So, yeah. you know, what's going to separate you a little bit is going to be how do you compete? Boy, that's hard because I'm still trying to sort this out. After 42 years of coaching and everything else, I'm, I'm still trying to sort that out if it's if it's an actual skill or if it's something that's kind of innate yeah and i think it's both but as a coach we do a lot of things that will try and raise the competitive juices so to speak and anytime you do it in a practice session if you want to get competitive you can do it in two ways add time and score so hey even our shooting drills all right we have a favorite shooting drill we have called the keyhole shooting drill as a team. So as a team, we got to make, let's say we're going we're to go for two minutes. And how many can make it two minutes as a team? Now, are we teaching shooting? No, we're not. 
what we're teaching competitive shooting. If you're going to teach shooting, you better back up and, you know, all right, now we're going to get the elbow in and all that stuff. We've done that part of it. Now we're going into the competitive part to it. To illustrate how we can get that competitive nature going, we keep track of individual wins and losses on a daily basis. So like if Johnny and Billy and Joe win their three-on-three game, we put a W beside their name and a loss beside everybody else's. Now we mix it up again, and it might be Johnny and and Joe and Bob, right? They win it. We put another W beside their name. and So at the end of a week, you can kind of see our, wow, Bobby has been on a winning team nine out of ten times his team has won. So it really tells you something about that player, I think. That's something players really, they look at and they kind of take note of because you're trying to develop that competitive nature. And so a long, a long answer to your question, but the hard work is really separate from being competitive. And I, I think that competitive nature separates the, the really good players. And the word great to me is way overused. There are very few great players. I mean, I, I think there might be, I can count on both hands the number of great players I think are in the NBA. They're all, there's some, they're all really good. But to be great is just different. And so these young kids that come to us at 16 and 17, you know, everybody tell them how great they are. I go, you guys, have, you're not great. You're very good for a 16-year-old. But don't get caught up in the fact that your best buddy in your high school tells you you're great. You know, great's a different level. Great people think different. Their approach is different. They're always trying to get better. You know, they want to be, I, I say great players want to be coached. They want to be coached. They all have that, that little extra something that nobody else has. Yeah. Coach, we'll transition to start, sub, or sit. So we'll give you the three different basketball topics and then tell us which one you'd start, which one you'd give a little playing time, sub in, which one you would... Uh, you would sit, you were at the high school level for over 40 years. And I know that at the high school level as a high school head coach, there's a lot more you have to do than just the X's and O's on the floor. So start, sub, sit, fundraising, scheduling, or budgeting. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Well, I'd start probably scheduling. I think that's the most important. Okay. Uh, I would probably uh, sub in. I'd, I'd sit fundraising. i turn that over to my assistants. Hey, I'm, you're, do, you're doing this. I'm, I don't want to fundraise. Uh, and then the, what, was, what was the third one? Budgeting. Budgeting. Yeah, well, that's a So I'd, I'd sub that one in. I'd, I'd sub that one in. But I'd start with scheduling. I think that's important. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess some of the uh, the fundraising depends on the school you're at and the, the type yeah. of uh, booster club you have and whatnot. It, like it takes so much time. You know, you could I could be spending on doing something basketball related. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> I, I I just I kind of turn that over to my when I was coaching. You know, I'd turn that over to my assistant and say, "You guys are in charge. We need we need five thousand bucks." Unfortunately, uh, yep. I think you know as a fundraiser. Every community has, you know, a guy or two or three that's we call sugar daddy. You know, <laughs> and say, "Hey, I need five hundred bucks for team dinner." And I just found out over the years, don't be afraid to ask them. I mean, yeah, 
more often than not, they're going to give you the money you want, especially if they have the means for it. You know, we all know people who have the means for it. And I think you recognize those people. And, and of course, you, you recognize them however you can, you know, give them a T-shirt. Man, they love T-shirts or pair of shorts or whatever, you know. Pretty good for 500 bucks. Absolutely. <laughs> good stuff. Okay, coach. Start, sub, or sit different types of presses. Huh. A one, two, two, a two, two, one, or a one, three, one. So full court presses or what? Yeah, full court press. Sorry. A full court press. Okay. I'm going to go. Well, uh, you, you, didn't, you didn't mention my favorite one. <laughs> one, two, one, one. So I'm going to go, I'm going to start with a one, two, two full court, 94 foot press. That's my start. Mm-hmm. We press all the time. And that's, that's, that's really one that we, I like. Then my sub one would be two, two, one. I bring it up there, probably deny the pass in more type of thing. And we're, okay. we're and then my uh, one, three, one, which I've never had much success with. I've looked at it. I've used it. I'm going to sit that baby. <laughs> I just, I just have not had the success with the one three one press that I've had with the other ones. Okay, For whatever reason, I'm not sure. Yeah, <laughs> coach, with the one two two, the point man or the one man, what's kind of his responsibility as the ball's being maybe before the inbound and then when the ball's brought in? Yeah, you know, absolutely the best four man I coached with USA basketball is Jaron Jackson, who's with Memphis. What was he a great? I mean, he you know he's obviously about six ten. He's long and quick. But as soon as that, yeah, that length ball, helps. yeah, the key to that press is the man on the ball is the whole key. If he gets on the ball right away, he can't be slow getting on the basketball. He's got to be really quick right away when the shot goes up, getting on the pass, getting on the ball. And then if the ball is passed in to the strong side, we trap right away. If it's passed in okay. across, the, we say if it goes across the paint, you're not trapping. It's too long a trap, and we just rotate. Sorry, this is a two two part follow up for you. You said okay. your favorite is the one two one one. Actually, so first yeah. question is why is that your favorite? And then the second part of my question is, do you like to press to slow a team's flow offensively, like kind of a softer press back into your defense, or do you like to press more to speed it up and trap and, and get turnovers? Okay, Dan, now you you raise a couple of good, really good questions here. Okay, the first one is the one two one one. That's our bread and butter press. But, you know, I think as coaches go, I think if you're coaching a team, you have to really put your team in a position to be successful. So if I like a one, two, one, one press, but they're horrible at it, you know, I got to be smart enough to understand, hey, we better back that up a little bit or whatever. So it, it really depends on my talent. So, you know, some years I'll have it to really put a lot of pressure to make the game up tempo. Some years I'll have more of a softer press, drop that one, two, one, one back to the free throw line area, or even drop it back to the half court area, depending on, on my team. Now with our USA basketball team, you know, obviously we we're so talented there that we would always start with a one, two, one, one. That was our bread and butter. And then we, we'd go from there and we, we would mix it up a little bit, but you know, first of all, depth wise, uh, we were so good depth wise. It didn't matter who was in there. So uh, that that's one of the reasons we, we pressed a lot. It just lent itself to what our kids could do. Specifically about the one two one one over the one two two. Why do you like the the one one alignment at the back instead of the the two guys? Yeah, I think we can cover more space. Okay, to me because that guy in the middle 
which is usually our point guard in the one, two, one, one. He can cover a lot of space in there. And then we have the, usually my five man's back. The one, two, two to me, there's too much a gap area in that middle between the two and the two if it's a full court. Okay. So we try and take some of that gap away by putting that one man in the middle. That's why I like the one, two, one, one better. Okay. Coach, I got more of a philosophical question yeah. or about the press. Uh, and even looking now at man to man pressing at a youth level, do you feel pressing should be really a universally applied that it drives individual improvement or d- drives development of, of younger players? What age group are you talking? Let's say 13, 14, 15, like, you know, I mean, where they can, they can dribble, you know, they have some idea of the game. First of all, let me say that youth basketball should absolutely be not playing any press. If your age is five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, 10, 11, 12, no press. I go to tournaments, youth tournaments. My grandsons are that age. So I go, and, you know, teams are playing like a one, three, one half court trap. And I just say, it just drives me nuts. All they're doing is because the coach wants a trophy in his man cave. Yeah. yeah. Really at about ninth grade level, 14 years old is when I think really the pressing maybe 13 should start. It should be a man to man press, no zone presses until they get to the high school. Yeah. Just to follow up. I mean, I think from my limited experience here in yeah, Europe, exactly. they, they do a big job of emphasizing, Hey, man to man press, teach the guys to try to stay in front of them, but also teach the offense how to, make quick decisions, make straight line dribbles, you know, like everyone's getting these skills that are really going to be beneficial when the winning becomes important. Well, FIBA, you know, FIBA doesn't recognize zone defense at all. If you play the junior FIBA rules, you can't play zone until you're age 14. So, uh, you know, being in Germany, you you probably understand. I think that's, to me, that's the way to go. Coach, okay, start, sub, sit. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Do we, do we get off track? Long, longest start yeah. subset answer we've had. Do we get yeah. off track on that or what? That's okay. <laughs> so, Coach, this, this might be kind of a, this might be a tough one uh, for you. I'm going to, I'm going to give you three gold standard traits. Ooh. Okay. okay. <laughs> so, start, sub, sit, intelligence, poise, or unselfishness? I'm going to go, I'm going to start, I'm going to say, Oh man, that's a tough one. I don't know if I'm any of those. I'm gonna, I'm gonna put. I'm, this might surprise you. I'm gonna start. My start is gonna be unselfishness. Okay. I, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I really, we really emphasize, you know, how do you make your teammates better? And you may be really good, but if you don't make your teammates better, our team's not be very good. That's gonna be my start. I think. I think, gosh darn it, I think uh, smart will probably be, intelligence will be my sub. Okay. And I think poise will be be the sit. Okay. Well, that's, that's a hard one because they're all, <laughs> yeah. they're all part of our standard group. But Exactly. But, you know, they're all going to get minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Poise will get some minutes, just not, not quite as much as this. <laughs> you know, and one of the things that when I evaluate players, we have five buckets just like we do for coaches. We call them DNA. But players' DNA you know, one of those five buckets is how smart they are, intelligence. I go watch players play, and boy, if players can understand the game or being smart, make good choices, decisions. That means a lot. Yeah. If you can actually, yeah, just kind of follow up. So, yeah, yeah how do you walk away saying that player is a smart player, that player's intelligent? What are maybe 
one or two examples or cues that you pick up that says like he knows he's got it? Well, I, I think, you know, first of all, the decisions they make on a court, are they making good decisions on the court? Are they making the, the passes? We call them on target, on point. What happens uh, after a mistake? Do they make the same mistake again? In the game situations, how many fouls your team have? You know, if the player's out there saying, hey, we got a foul to give. You know, I love those guys. That just shows that they're being smart into the game. Or I'll see, a, you know, like maybe a post player talking to a guard and say, you know, hey, next time defender's going to play on my top side, so I'm going to really push him up the lane. So you need to dribble baseline to get a better passing angle. That's being pretty, pretty darn smart. Right. right. Okay. Yeah. My last one, coach. So as far as youth players approaching individual improvement in the summer, starts up sit here. So skill work or skill drills, you know, whether it's with the trainer, but you're attacking cones one-on-one or two-on-two. Mm. I, I took away your favorite answer, the three-on-three. <laughs> you did, I know, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, you know, it's pretty easy to beat a cone. So I, I'm going to take that that skill drills. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that as sit. Okay. I mean, we may do some of that, but uh, I like more live. You know, a lot of trainers love those cones. But I'm more of a one-on-one guy. Uh, so I'm going to go start with one-on-one. Then my sub would be two-on-two. Not that we're not going to do the skill drills, but I think we can do the skill drills a lot of times with the partner one-on-one type thing, uh, just to put some resistance, decision-making, those kind of things out there. That's kind of the hot topic. If you go talk to coaches now, how do you, you know, do you do skill development? Do you just do try to get reps in, or do you do it against defense? Or, you know, how do you develop those? I think it's got to be a combination. Yeah. You know, I'm not a big cone guy. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, I, Fair enough. I do, but I'm not a, you know, I don't spend a lot of time with, with the cones. In terms of a two-on-two, is there maybe something you could, I mean, I, I know my question was in the off-season, so a coach isn't around, but maybe encourage where it's not just two-on-two, but it's really one-on-one, where the other, you just kind of sit and watch. I don't have the ball. Okay, now I have the ball. Now it's one-on-one. Like to maybe teach other aspects of the game besides the one-on-one, which is why you're playing two-on-two. Yep. I, I think the best rule you can put in on that. We tell, we do this with a lot is, is once you make a pass, you got to move. Yeah. You know, we have a lot of young kids. I mean, even, even our elite kids, you know, we play a game called cutthroat where there's three rules. One of them is once you pass the ball, you got to move. You can make a basket, mm-hmm. you can set screens, you can set screen. So, you know, you, you want to get rid of that ball watching mentality, yeah. you know, pass and just, I'm going to watch you what you're going to do. And, Young players tend to do that, obviously, a lot more than experienced players. But that's a rule. And when we play two-on-two, if they don't move after the pass, then we hey, the other team's ball. Yeah. Coach, my last one for you. These are offensive systems. So start, sub, sit. Dribble, drive, motion. Yeah. Flex or Princeton. Well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know... <laughs> I'm going to go, my, my start, it depends on my team again. You know, kind of a little bit about the press action. kind of depends on my team. Yep. I'm probably going to go dribble drive as a start. 
Uh, now, again, like I used the example before, if I have three guys who can't use their left hand, dribble with their left hand, I'm probably going to have to change that because, you know, it's <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and that's kind of, you know, dribble drive is you can teach a lot of concepts out of that kick and, you know, that stuff. So I want to go that. I want to go Princeton as, as uh, sit okay. just because it really takes a lot of time to teach that, in my opinion. For the kids to get that concept of you know the back cutting and the, mm-hmm. you know it just takes a lot of time for that to put in. I'm not I'm not sure as a high school coach you can actually do a very good job of that in a, in a year. I think you have to have you know yeah. players come through one, two, and three years, then you can do a much better job. And I'm going to go flex. You know, I run the flex variation, but I'm going to have that as my sub. Okay. And and one thing you know the flex is kind of a nice nice offense because. You can really kind of put that in, like as a special day before game. Yeah, you know it's pretty easy. You have that yeah. Flex cut down screen, come off that down screen, especially if you've never used it up until you know that's a. We kind of put that in like end of January when we have teams starting the second time, so they really haven't seen us do that. Now we're going to kind of run that flex and yeah. Okay. You didn't ask me about the triangle. Where's the triangle at? <laughs> <laughs> where, where would you put the triangle? I'd put that. I'd put that like uh, sit and never get in. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he's not even dressed. No, he's not even dressed. <laughs> he's sick that day. You're you're gonna hurt <laughs> our chances, coach, of getting Phil Jackson on the show. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. Well, well, if I had if Phil Jackson, had he had the players, he could run anything. That's but, right. Uh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> coach, I want to follow up. That was a great answer, by the way. I love listening to that. Now, you've coached against some international teams that run great stuff, you know, at the the youth level and are European pick and roll and all sorts of interesting yep. actions. Why did you choose the dribble drive motion, which sometimes can be considered a you know a simpler type of offense over some of the offenses maybe you've seen at the international level? Well, yeah. First of all, you know, you talk about playing FIBA basketball. You, you have a 24 second shot clock. So you're not going to be able to run a lot of, you're not going to be able to swing that ball back and forth too often. We want to get the ball from one side to the other and maybe back and we're going to get a great shot. And so that's kind of why the dribble drive, you know, a lot of things about international basketball, international teams will run a action that has nothing to do with their scoring. Start with, I mean, absolutely nothing. Pat, you know this. You played basketball, yeah. so so you have a lot of action. So we tell our players, don't even don't worry about this action over here because it has nothing to do. Here's where the shot's going to come from. Now, I, w- I will say to add to that, I think the international game has done really a lot to help our junior national teams' skill level and decision making. I just think our high school has. We're in the dark ages. We don't have a shot clock. I mean, we are. You know, I think there's eight states that have a shot clock. I think there's a few more next year. But we're in the dark ages. I mean, we should be having a shot clock, 32nd maybe, 35, but we should be having a shot clock. Yeah. Because it really helps players make decisions on the court. It takes some of that coaching out of it, which I think is good. The second thing I think international done, the, the timeout rule. And, Pat, you know this. Players can't call timeout. Got to come from the bench. You know, so... We're used. To, our kids are used to. They're getting in a little trouble. All right, they're going timeout. Yeah. You know, first of all, it takes the flow away from the game. Secondly, it doesn't help in their decision making. I got to do something out here. I got. 
I got to figure out, I got to figure it out as a player, you know, how to get my teammates involved and get a good shot here in six seconds. So uh, I think those two rules really helped our young kids progress in their abilities. Okay. Well, coach, thank you. Uh, Hopefully you don't get too much mail from the Princeton coaches out there really (laughs) upset about (laughs) stalwarts. Yeah. There's there's some good ones. There are. <laughs> and, and really, the guys that run the Princeton run it really good. Oh yeah, so, yeah. it's just that they have a lot of time. I think yep. time to put it in and, and do a good job with it. But Absolutely, I love to watch yeah. it. Yeah, I love to watch it. Uh, sometimes, sometimes I'm not sure how good it would be for the international game. Is you kind of got to let it run through a few times to get really the shot you're looking for. Yeah. So by that time, I think your 24 second shot would be winding down a lot. Right. On it. So. So I'm not sure how the Princeton, you know, and it's it's kind of a little bit of a more of a ball control type of offense. Yeah, don't no no letters. I'm going to pass these off. Yeah, pass just send them our way. It's our <laughs> fault. For, yeah, yeah, just yeah. forward them. Forward them. Well, coach, thank you. You're off the the hot seat for start sub sit. As we kind of finish the podcast here, you know, first of all, really, thank you so much for taking the time with us. This has been this has been awesome. So, um, thanks for for sharing so much. As we end here, I want to finish with this question. I mean, you're someone that's had so much success at different levels and have had such a long career as a a coach. What's one of the best compliments that you can get from someone about a team that you've coached? I I think there's a couple of them. Number one is how unselfish they are. When we have, you know, five guys on the court who are all going to be NBA guys. And an international coach, you know, a coach from Spain or France comes up to you and says, hey, I can't believe how well your guys play together. I think that's probably one of the ultimate goals that we have is to have that. I think the second thing is is how hard they play. You're getting rebounds and traffic and, you know, you're diving on the floor after loose ball. Sometimes that's kind of false hard work. But, <laughs> but you know, compliment from France last year, we played them in the gold medal game in 2018 with Jalen Suggs and that group was, you know, he just said, I wish I could get my kids to play to the level of hard that you guys play. I I thought that was really a tremendous compliment. So I think those two things, unselfishness and and playing hard. Yeah, it's a great answer. You know, someone like yourself, once again, who's had so much success over a long career, what is it about coaching and what is it about the game of basketball, you know, that's kept you in the game for so long, that's made you love it and have such a long, successful career? Yeah, good question. I think it's because, first of all, I had some really good coaches when I was young. Sixth, seventh, eighth grade, I had some really, really good coaches. And they made me love the game. I mean, I just love the game. You know, I couldn't wait to get back to practice. Uh, and why they made me love the game was was because they were so positive with me. They gave me nuggets to think about uh, as far as, hey, you know what? You, you can be a really good shooter if you work on your footwork here. So that made me love the game. I had some coaches I didn't necessarily like as I got a little older, but boy, those coaches I had in, in that age, that's why it's so imp- youth coaches are so important, you know, to make kids love the game. Also, I think once you, it's addictive. I mean, coaching is really kind of addictive. You get addicted to the, you know, the practice. I love the practice. When I was a young coach, I didn't necessarily like practices. I love the games. When I coached after about 25, 30 years, I didn't like the games, but I love the practice. So I kind of diverted from, from loving the practices more as that longer I coach. But I think it's kind of an, 
you know, just the, the whole developing the players and it's kind of addictive. I think the other thing is the relationships keep you in coaching. Well, you talk about, you know, developing great relationships and, you know, you really don't know how, what kind of effect you have on players until maybe 15, 20 years later, you get it. You know, Brad Beal sends me a Christmas card of his two young kids. He has, you know, how cool is that? Yeah. You know, I still have that yeah. type of thing. So, or, you know, Jason Tatum will text me after a game and says, Hey, did you, did you watch the game tonight? You know, those are just amazing things. The relationships are fantastic. We've all had, you know, great coaches in our lives because that's what that's what started us loving the game. And then we all have some really good relationships uh, that we develop in the game of basketball. I always say, you know, two coaches, we don't know each other from anything. We can get together. It's there's not five minutes later where we'll both know somebody. Or yeah, I worked his camp twenty years ago. I think, oh yeah, I remember him. You know, so you have something in common. And it doesn't take long to find that commonality, basketball coaches. The other thing I like about basketball coaches, they are willing to share. Man, football coaches don't share nothing. I mean, <laughs> they think they have everything secret, and they're not going to share. I remember our football coach at our high school, he would not share a thing uh, with other football coaches. But, you know, our basketball coaches, hey, they, we share all the time. And so I think, you know, the relationships you have, with players and coaches, the ability to Coaches made you love the game, therefore you love the game. You're going to try and instill that love of the game uh, to your players. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to subscribe to our Sunday morning newsletter for additional insights on this podcast. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slap and Glass. Do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping backboard. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. That's good. Those are all <laughs> slapping glass.